So many things have ruined my childhood So I go online to bitch and cry It feels like all of Hollywood is up against me They even made Optimus Fly New versions of what I grew up with Are being remade, rebooted and retried My adolescence is under attack now I think that a part of me has died Aliens, uh -huh, uh -huh. Predators, uh -huh, uh -huh. Marvel, uh -huh, uh -huh. DC, uh -huh, uh -huh. maybe it doesn't all quite sting Okay, well, except maybe for that Jar Jar Binks Could it be I've misunderstood? This podcast ruined my childhood Hello and welcome to This Podcast Ruined My Childhood. I'm Phil Durasmo and with me is Eric Walensky. Hey, it's Eric Walensky. How's it going, Eric? Well, I straight don't exist. I have no name and no fingerprints. That's the men in, that's the men in, that's the men in black. In black, remember that just in case we have a face to face and make contact. The title held by me, MIB, means what you think you saw, you did not see. Well, everyone, as you can guess from Eric's lead in and then bouncing with me, you'll know that we're talking about the Men in Black franchise this week. So, Eric, what are, what are your memories of Men in Black? I did not see the first Men in Black in theaters. I didn't see that what? until... Yeah, I didn't see it until video, but then I did see parts two and three in the theater. And uh, I just remember, like, that one that one just somehow got by me. It came out in 97, and that is when I worked at the movie theater. Uh, however, there are two movie theaters in town, and it was at the other one. So, <laughs> I, yeah, so I didn't get to that. It's like the only blockbuster for a three-year period that did not end up at the theater I worked with. So I, I just, Men in Black slid by me, and it just never grabbed me. I didn't know anything about it. I knew it was based on a comic book, and and it just just slid by me. But then once I finally did see it on video, I was like, man, that was really funny. I like that. And uh, so I so I showed up for parts two and three. Well, it did have the the blockbuster making Will Smith. Yes, known as Mister Fourth. Yep, for he his sure summer blockbuster success. Three years in a row, if I remember correctly. Wild Wild West was the least of his summer blockbusters, but it's on the list. My memories of Men in Black. I remember going to see this in theaters. I did love Will Smith. Um, he he made the summer. Uh, he made. A movie coming out in the summer, exciting. And you knew that summer was here when you went to see Will Smith um, have some crazy hijinks on the screen. I really, really loved Men in Black. I thought it was just such a fun, funny, and smart movie. And it just was awesome entertainment, had great, great, great comic relief in a movie that didn't necessarily need as much as it had. They just... Tommy Lee Jones's deadpan character and Will Smith's young upstart character, the two of them becoming like buddy cops. Mm -hmm. It just, it, it worked. I mean, we've had that formula forever. You know, that, that type of movie has been around since they were making Westerns. But 
what they did in the film just it felt like it worked better than any uh, any other that had come before it. And what's funny is that Men in Black has become the highest grossing buddy cop movie of all time. Yep. You beat me to that fact. I was just about to say it. Good job. Take that. So in 1997, we had Men in Black. It was just such a fun, fun film. Um, A couple years later, Men in Black 2 came out to not as much fanfare. It's something that people wanted. And I think, I don't know if it maybe five years was too much time between 97's Men in Black and 2002's Men in Black 2, or that the script was just lacking and they just couldn't get the right story, but it wasn't received as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where it fell apart there. I, for me personally, it, it felt like it just took too long to get there. Like, mm-hmm. I liked the concept of having to get Tommy Lee Jones and get him back into it and have to restart his memory and all that. Uh, I just felt like by the time they finally, it was, it just, it might not have even been that far into the movie. It just felt like it was too far into the movie for me. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. The whole plot of them having to save the the MacGuffin in this movie, which turned out to be a person um, that Will Smith was falling in love with, it just was, it was... Too, like we say in every podcast we do, when you make a sequel, you make it too complicated and convoluted. Yep. And that's just what they did in Men in Black 2. It was hard to follow. There were too many characters that you met and had to know who they were from the evil villain to her side character that's a terrible Johnny Knoxville with two heads, which we didn't need even one head of Johnny Knoxville, but we got two. And the owner of the pizzeria and then the, the character who's the MacGuffin and... It just it was, was too, too much. much. Yeah, way mm-hmm. too much. Did you know Robert Downey Jr. Uh, had auditioned to be the Johnny Knoxville character? I did not know that. I don't know exactly why they went with Johnny Knoxville, but uh, they just went in a different direction. I don't know if it was a contract or money or timing, but uh, but they ultimately went with Johnny Knoxville. Probably because Jackass was, oh, like, was huge. on fire at that yeah. point. Yeah, it was huge. They wanted to bring in the kids. The reason Laura Flynn Boyle got her role in the movie, or at least a large part of it, was she was recommended by Jack Nicholson, and Sony wanted Jack for the movie Anger Management. So there was this kind of a deal where it's like, hey, if you do Anger Management, we can get your girlfriend into this movie. So that's an interesting little factoid about how Hollywood works. It's all who you know. Yeah, wow. I did not know that. Thank you for enlightening me. You're welcome. But now I'm going to hit you with the neuralizer, and you're going to completely forget. Yeah, I, I won't remember any of it. Um, <laughs> and then we had 10 years go by before we got Men in Black 3. And Men in Black 3 kind of took us back to the roots of what made Men in Black so good, which is fun, a fun plot. It was It was complicated, but not in the convoluted way. It was complicated in the... We have a storyline, and we're following this one storyline, this one thread through the whole movie. They didn't throw random side plots in the film. They made it very easy to follow. Right. And that's, I think, what they did really well with Men in Black 3. And the the whole storyline for Men in Black 3, I don't know if you knew this tidbit. We're just hitting each other with tidbits. But Will Smith pitched the idea for Men in Black 3 while they were filming Men in Black 2, and he was told to just 
hold on and let's finish Men in Black 2 before we talk about Men in Black 3. But the idea of Agent J having to go back in time to save Agent K was Will Smith's idea that then got flushed out years later. Interesting. I'm going to hit you back with another tidbit. Do you know who was originally considered for Agent J? Uh, I don't, but you can tell me. Chris O'Donnell. Really? Yes. Hot off of uh, Batman and Robin, uh, the studio was thinking Chris O'Donnell. Barry Sonnenfeld, the director of Men in Black, actually had a dinner with Chris O'Donnell because he actually really wanted Will Smith in the movie, and he kind of – uh, discreetly talked Chris O'Donnell out of it by saying, ah, the script's not great and I'm attached to it and I'm not really sure I'm hot on it and I don't know if it's even going to be any good. And Chris O'Donnell ended up backing out of it because he was uh, sort of talked out of it indirectly by uh, by Barry Sonnenfeld. So huh. that's how Will Smith ended up in the movie, who actually had passed on it once and then they went back and they got him into it. Interesting. That's that's really interesting. I had no idea. Oh, Chris O'Donnell, what a different movie it would be. A completely different movie. And while we're on the who could have played who, before Tommy Lee Jones, they were actually thinking Clint Eastwood. Huh. We could have seen Clint Eastwood and Chris O'Donnell as agents J and K. What a different movie th- that would be. It would be, I'd say if you were going to go apples to apples, Clint and Tommy can both kind of do that brooding, quiet character pretty much. But I think you would have been polar opposite directions with Chris O'Donnell and Will Smith. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Flash forward a couple more years. We have uh, seven years between Men in Black 3 and then the soft reboot with Men in Black International in 2019. So just last year. And we'll get into Men in Black International pretty soon. But we've just kind of glossed over Men in Black 1, 2, and 3. Anything that you want to call out? Uh, I just think that the the very first Men in Black was a very well-done, concise, um, slight origin story, uh, kind of getting us into what the Men in Black is, who they are, why they do what they do. And, um, and I think it was just a very... Well done. Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, a very memorable bad guy. What a great uh, villain. Yes, great film. And it had the right amount. It, it's the perfect summer blockbuster, the right amount of action, humor, and and heart. I thought uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character arc of, you know, I'm not training my partner, I'm training my replacement, was very, mm-hmm. very strong and heartfelt for a man mm-hmm. who spent his whole life as a secret agent that nobody knows about and all he really wants now is that life that that he's missing. So I thought it, it had everything. And then that's where Men in Black 2 just sort of faltered by being uh, overly complicated. And then uh, I think it's a nice wrap-up, Men in Black 3, to kind of bring everything full circle, though uh, maybe not quite necessary because i feel like anytime you rewrite a backstory in a history and kind of insert it into places you start thinking too hard about it and then you're like well wait a minute if he did that then wouldn't this have been this and then you can almost undermine the brilliance of the original by then trying to make it make sense with later stuff that just wasn't written there in the first place Sure. You know, I want to touch on a point that you made before, which is that 
the first movie is kind of a great origin story. And it's a great origin story for Jay joining the Men in Black. But what is interesting is that Men in Black 2 tried to fill in the gaps of the origin story of the Men in Black coming into existence. And Men in Black 3 tried to fill the story of Agent K meeting Jay and always watching over him and grooming him to eventually become a man in black. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting that the origin story for Jay is then piled on with two origin stories that follow it up. Right. And as we're going to get into momentarily, um, men in black international almost discredits the whole creation of the men in black. (laughs) It sure does. We talked about star Trek in a previous episode do you know what Star Trek and Men in Black have in common? At least one thing. Let, let me put it that way. There might be more, but the one I'm talking about specifically. Do you know what Star Trek and Men in Black have in common? Spaceships. Uh, see, I knew I was setting myself up with this one. <laughs> Why don't you just tell us what you're talking about, Eric? <laughs> I'll do that, Phil. <laughs> they both have aliens with genitals in strange places. Oh, okay. In Men in Black 2, if you remember, Will Smith has to fight a Chinballian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a giant alien comes at him and he knocks him out with a punch to the chin, which is actually his genitals. In Star Trek 6, Kirk is fighting a giantly massive alien in Rurapente, the Klingon prison planet. And he gets knocked to the ground. He's going to get crushed, and he kicks it in the knees. The thing turns blue, buckles over, and falls. Kirk gets up and goes over to McCoy and a friendly alien, uh, Aman, and says, boy, I'm glad that thing had weak knees. And Iman says, not all species have genitals in the same place. <laughs> so men in black went with the chin star trek went with the knees it's all disturbing <laughs> just think of how different karate kid would be if they said sweep the leg and we had our genitals there. <laughs> <laughs> thinking out of the box phil i like that <laughs> sweep the leg but groin strikes are illegal <laughs> I'm sure we'll get the Karate Kid in another episode of the show, so we can save uh, this this for that, too. <laughs> you know, something that I really want to call out about Men in Black 3 is that Jermaine Clement, who we talk about more than I think on this podcast, because he's just had bit roles in, in lots of movies that have come out lately. Mm-hmm. Um, he mm-hmm. is so good as the villain in this film. And he generally plays lighthearted characters. He doesn't necessarily play the bad guy. Mm-hmm. He plays a really good bad guy in this film. Agreed. Mm-hmm. From breaking out of the prison and using that woman who he then just lets fly out off into space on the moon um, to going back and talking to his younger self. And he's just evil. And he plays it with such t- tongue in cheek fun that you know he was just having the time of his life on set oh yeah i i see that anytime i see jermaine in any role mm-hmm. he, he's really really he's got the the perfect he's so deadpan but so hysterical yeah uh yeah 
Love him and everything. Perfect villain for this movie, too, to bring it back to being more of a, a movie like the first movie where Vincent D'Onofrio had so much fun with that role, and now we get Jemaine having such fun with this role. And Laura Lynn Boyle, nothing against her as an actress, but she just... She seen she was very one note in Men in Black Two. Yes, yep, and I think that might be another part of Men in Black Two that just just kind of failed. There was not that cheeky, fun, crazy alienness. Mm-hmm. It really just boiled down to her kind of sexuality, really. Right. Where, whereas uh, Vincent D'Onofrio and and Jermaine Clement sort of took a more fun, quirky, um, strange approach. Yeah. Now, uh, some fun trivia between Men in Black 2 and 3. The If you'll remember in Men in Black 2, they go to this storage locker at, I, I think, Grand Central Station or Penn Station or somewhere. And they open up the storage locker and there's this whole race of little aliens that live in this locker mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Agent K put there years ago. And he left his watch in the locker and they all worship the watch, these little aliens. What's fun is that in uh, Men in Black 3, Josh Brolin is wearing that watch as young Agent K. Mm. I think that's a pretty fun little piece of canon that they kept through both movies. Mm-hmm. See, nice little things like that I think are, are great. It's just when you overcomplicate them by writing backstories that need to tie in. That's when you get, in the, get into some trouble. Speaking of backstories that need to tie in, let's go into Men in Black International. <laughs> Because that's quite a, quite a good segue. <laughs> that's a pretty good segue. Another tidbit I'm going to hit you with that goes into the uh, Men in Black International. There were originally, Sony was trying to decide which movies and which franchises they were going to pursue. Did you know they were thinking at one point of making a Men in Black and 21 Jump Street mashup movie? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. They had somebody start writing it too. Yep. It was going to be called MIB 23 because it was going to be, you know, they did 21 Jump Street to 22 Jump Street to 23 Jump Street, which would have been combined with Men in Black. That would have been insane. And I would have to imagine hysterical. Oh, yeah, for sure. I I would still like to see that come to fruition. I know that it's dead and it probably will never happen, but it would be a hilarious movie. Yeah. If you could get Agent J, if Will Smith would come back. And he would be the Tommy Lee Jones character mentoring Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill. That would be oh, amazing. Man. That you're blowing my mind now. <laughs> it would be it would be a really fun movie. Well, what did we get instead? <laughs> uh, you know, I actually don't know what we got instead because I've tried to forget everything about Men in Black International. Well, I'm going <laughs> to sing my same song. It's overly complicated. It it flashes back twice in the first 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> when you're starting with that much backstory already, I can't help but think of uh, of Rick and Morty. There's an episode where they're on a purge planet, and Rick has to go do a science thing, and Morty has to listen to this innkeeper or a lighthouse keeper, tell him his story. He'd written a screenplay, and he wants Morty to listen to it. So he reads the whole thing. And when he's finished, he goes, what would you think? And Morty goes, that's good. And he's like, no, give me feedback. I can handle it. He's like, well, right away at the beginning of this, uh, the screenplay, you, you, you flash back. I just kind of think a movie should begin where a movie begins. Don't show me some fun action stuff just to lure me in. Start the movie where the movie starts. And the innkeeper hates this advice, gets all mad and 
one thing leads to another. Watch the episode. It's it's hysterical. It's, Rick and it's Morty. Very funny, yeah. On uh, anyway, I I I had that exact thought as I'm watching this. The movie starts in 2016 with Liam Neeson and Chris Hemsworth fighting some alien thing that we've never heard of before. It's brand new to us. We only see a few seconds of it. Then the movie flashes back 20 years earlier when Tessa Thompson's character is a little girl and she meets an alien and becomes obsessed with finding this men in black group that that uh, helps police the galaxy. And uh, quite honestly, I was expecting yet another flashback because now we're just left to pick up all these plots and pieces because the movie just didn't start where the movie started. I I just feel real weird about one flashback is fine. As we talked about in Star Trek, we saw Kirk being born in the beginning of J.J. Abrams' reboot. And then we flash forward to you know Kirk as a young child and we see him grow up and that made sense. But just to take us back to Tessa Thompson's childhood for a minute and then now she's an adult. And then we go to 2017 to or 2016 to watch the men in black fight some alien thing and then bring us back to the, it was too much. Yeah. I already feel like I've even said too much saying all of that. You have, you have. Um, I think we've, we've spoken more about this movie already than we did about men in black too. Um, it's, it's really difficult to pull an audience in when you can't keep them straight on the same timeline. The difference between star Trek and 2009 is that it started um, at when Kirk was being born, it didn't flash. Right. You know, it, it started it, it progressed. there. Exactly. And it progressed. This right. one started in 2016, went back 20 years, then went to 2019. And so it, it wasn't that it progressed. It was that it started behind the story we're telling rather than telling the story like you were quoting Morty on. Right. Um. And there's so much wrong with what happened in the flashback because there's just so many pieces of it that don't make sense. And you learn more about why it doesn't make sense as the movie goes on, which is supposed to be this huge reveal that anybody watching this movie with half a brain can see coming, at least by the half point of the movie. Well, and not only that, but we're flashed forward or however you want to say it. The movie now starts us off after the two flashbacks in a men in black world that we are completely unfamiliar with the previous three men in blacks aliens were undercover underground kept quiet it the whole point of this was the men in black were a secret organization keeping us safe from the bad aliens and the good aliens were supposed to be undercover and they were just supposed to be here because they were exiles or or pilgrims from other planets that were just like hey shh, okay you can be here but you, you got to keep it under but men in black international aliens are like just everywhere there's a whole club in london devoted to aliens being aliens and humans who know that there are aliens that goes against the whole premise of the neuralizer yeah yeah and it seems like as this movie progresses they care less and less about neuralizing people. There's a whole action sequence in Marrakesh where they are flying this this space uh, this future technology motorcycle and they're fighting these twins that can morph and turn into different things and phase in and out and nobody gets neuralized. Nothing happens. 
Everybody just sees them. And they just, at the end of this action sequence, they just blast off in the uh, motorcycle, the space cycle or whatever you want to call it, and then they're gone. Yeah. And there's no cleanup crew. There's nobody there that goes to help handle things like they always made mention of in Men in Black, Men in Black 2, and Men in Black 3. And that's another problem, too, with the jumping around. They're in Marrakesh, and then they're in London, and then they're in the desert, and then they go to an island, and they're all over the place. Keeping all of that straight just got so complicated after a while. Mm -hmm. It didn't need to be that complicated. No. No, it didn't. It didn't. Um, Speaking of neuralizing, one of the best – in in the worst movie until this point of the series, Men in Black 2 – they use a neuralizer on the Statue of Liberty to get the entire city of Manhattan, which I think is a really fun and interesting way to tie in a landmark in New York to the Men in Black lore. Right. It's funny. Cheeky. Yeah. In this, they just don't they, – they don't care. They don't do anything. <laughs> well, they also play up the fact that Chris Hemsworth's character is different. He's been different ever since he and High T – ugh. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, they, they are in London, you know. Sure. They, after they save the world, and he keeps saying over and over, like, with only my wits and my gun, with only my wits and my gun, and it's like, okay, it's obvious you've been neuralized. And they keep saying he hasn't been the same since. He hasn't been the same since. And I thought they were going to maybe take this into an interesting direction that the neuralizer itself is now proving to be harmful to people. Mm-hmm. Like they use it, like they even reference it in, in the first Men in Black where Will Smith asks Tommy Lee Jones, yeah. how many times has he zapped the mortician? And, yep. and she, he, he's like, you don't know what that's doing to their brain. So, so I thought this could have been an interesting concept that the Men in Black have to examine what they do and maybe that's why they were sort of not being as careful with how they were neuralizing everybody. But no, it's just they just didn't care to write that detail in. They wanted a big chase scene, and we're just going to put it in there, and rules of men in black be damned. That's a big a big sticking point for me when it comes to sequels, requels, reboots, is not following the rules that you set up in your original story. And this film went so far from any rules that we set up in any of the past Men in Black movies. And it, it just kind of, to me, it spit in the face of what we knew. It didn't build on it. It didn't add to it. It just made it into um, something that can't be taken as seriously if you're keeping Men in Black International as part of the lore. One of the biggest issues is that in Men in Black 2, we talk about the formation of Men in Black. And that, you know, the, the Area 51, the, the landing of the aliens, and blah, 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 blah. In this film, they talk about how the person who created the Eiffel Tower was one of the original members of Men in Black. Mm-hmm. And that's many, many, many years yes. before the Area 51 incident. Right, Roswell. Yeah, I didn't, that just throws it right out the window. And it's fine if you're going to do that in a reboot, requel, whatever you call it. But you've got to acknowledge it and why it's different. Even if it's just one quick little line, you've got to give the nod because otherwise you're confusing people and you and I have Mm -hmm. to do a podcast like this to talk about it. (laughs) 
Yeah, they could have thrown a line in that, well, the Americans didn't find out about it for a long time or something like that. But they they don't. And the Manhattan office of MIB is like the main office for the men in black. So it's just very poorly executed. And inconsistent. Inconsistent. Very inconsistent. Yep. So to to get through the plot of the story, the whole flashback for Agent M, right? That's her name. She's Molly, so she becomes Agent M. Tessa Thompson. We get to the end to the island that you referenced, and the alien that she saw and helped escape in her flashback 20 years earlier is there and is just by chance a bodyguard for the big bad and turns out that he remembers her and so he's going to help her. Yeah. Very, very lame. It was so telegraphed right from the beginning that she was going to see this thing again. And in such a coincidental, like, it's not even like she met the thing and then later on it came into play again. It's like literally in the only moment that they could be saved. It's like, (laughs) Molly, what? (laughs) Come on. And I like that as a premise. I thought it was kind of neat. It's just it was so blatant. Right. Most things in this movie were blatant, but something that wasn't blatant and I was confused about was the the twins, the dyads. They, I did not understand their whole point for coming and trying to track down the men in black and trying to get pawn and the crystal. It just didn't make full sense to me. And, you know, after reading up on it and you and I talking before we, we did this, I understand that Really, it was just a misunderstanding between language, but you shouldn't hinge your plot on a misunderstanding with language. No, semantics should never be the whole point of your plot. No, not at all. So explain explain why or what happened, if you can. Because you understood it way more than I did. The, the whole point of the twins hinged on the fact that they were there because they needed this weapon for the hive. Which if you say it one way and say you need this for something, it sounds like they wanted to get this weapon and give it to the hive. Or they were part of the hive. Right. And really Tessa Thompson figures out that maybe when they say we need this for the hive, they meant to use against it. The same way I would say I need to get some bug spray for these hornets right well i'm not going to give the bug spray to the hornets i'm going to use it on the hornets to get rid of them so so to make such a again it's just a a syntax and and semantical semantical a word well it is now it is now (laughs) it's well here the problem that i have is is not that they did it this way it's that they just did it poorly when it was done before Right. Every Men in Black, Men in Black 1 and Men in Black 2 both had plays on words mm-hmm. that meant something bigger mm-hmm. than what they what we took them as at face value in the movie. Mm-hmm. Orion's belt wasn't that the galaxy was out in space on Orion's belt. The galaxy was on the cat named Orion's right. belt, which was his collar. Right. And then in Men in Black 2, whatever they called her. Um, the light. The light, it was her instead of who was the character? Who was it? Rosario Dawson? I don't remember. I don't remember. Whoever it was, the light was her instead of it being an actual light somewhere. It's just MacGuffins, these MacGuffins that they're using. Right. This this movie 
did it in such a poor way that they didn't even make it make sense. They made it not make sense to try to make sense of it. And that's just poorly written. I agree. And that's why even with those previous Men in Black, I don't necessarily think of that as semantics because at least it was a a better formed mislead. Whereas this is just like, hey, you know how we did that in the other Men in Blacks? Well, this time we're just going to have them mistake the way they mean they need it for something. Like that's not even interesting. Nope. (laughs) Like that could be a lot of this movie is not interesting. That could be one of the big problems. (laughs) What do you mean you need it for the hive? You're going to give it to them? No, we're going to use it against them. Oh, I see what you mean. Oh, we should stop fighting and and team up and work together. That would have been great. (laughs) The movie would have been over an hour sooner, which would have been a lot better if they did just talked it out. Well, uh, I did some reading. Apparently, Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson actually hired their own dialogue writers because the script was not great. So you know you're kind of in trouble when your actors are actually hiring other writers to rewrite your dialogue. Wow. I I hadn't heard that. That, to me, seems like a big sticking point. Oh, yeah. And ultimately, I like Chris Hemsworth. Uh, He's fun to watch. Like, I didn't hate this movie. I just think that they didn't do a good job of uh, adding to the franchise. Uh, not a not a childhood ruiner, but definitely uh, not an enhancer. Um, yeah, for sure. It it same here. It didn't ruin my childhood because I still have Men in Black one and three that I will frequent. I really won't watch two much more. If you know, maybe when I'm introducing my daughter to it, I'll will watch all of them, but. I can't see myself sitting down and saying, oh, I want to watch Men in Black 2. But I, I can never see myself sitting down and wanting to watch this again because it it spits in the face of what was so good about the originals. So it didn't ruin my childhood. I just didn't like it and don't ever need to see it again. Yeah. The one thing I will say is that Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson have great chemistry. And you can see that in Thor Ragnarok and in this movie. So it's great that they're working together. But they couldn't save this film from itself. I agree. Uh, again, I, I like watching Chris Hemsworth. He's good. It just, uh, it, that was the only redeeming factor to me. And Liam Neeson. I like Liam Neeson. That was, uh, that was he, he's fun to watch too. So He's fun to watch too, but had a, and a good like cast. I said, the whole, we saw it all coming, the end where he is the hive. Right. Like, you have to have a better plan than wait three years. And hope that nobody figures it out. Like, what's what's the point? Just just do what you came to do. Yeah. Why didn't they inhabit more bodies? Why didn't they take over Chris Hemsworth also? Yeah. Why why leave him alive and neuralize him? Right. Because he wasn't helpful. Nope. He didn't help their plan. Nope. They could have just killed him. Liam Neeson could have came out of the Eiffel Tower himself and said, "Oh, we lost a guy." Yeah. Didn't make sense. But no, let's let's keep him alive and make him bumbling. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't add anything. And if 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 they wanted to argue that the reason they did that is because they knew that he was good friends with that other alien that had the weapon, and so they left him alive to be bumbling so he could get that weapon from that alien, then I still have to question why wait three years to make that happen. <laughs> right. Or why not just take over Chris Hemsworth also and then go get the weapon? And then go get the weapon. It just, there's just none of it, none of it made sense. 
Well, I think those are our final thoughts then. <laughs> yeah. Men in Black is still a great franchise. I would love to see MIB 23 if they could get around to making it, but we don't need any more installments of Men in Black International. I will finalize my thoughts with one last bit of trivia, Phil. Ooh. What a good episode this is with trivia. Do you know what kind of glasses the Men in Black wore? Ray-Bans. Yes. Do you know that Ray-Bans do not appear in the Men in Black series? I didn't know that they weren't in the, like the name didn't appear in any of the other ones. I knew it didn't appear in the first one. Correct. And there was a fight over it. Because they had to put a special coating so that the glasses didn't reflect for filming. So the Ray-Ban logo was covered up, and Ray-Ban was like, but you got to put us in here. That's the whole point. Nobody knows. So Will Smith helped everybody out by writing that line into the Men in Black song with the black Ray-Bans on. Hmm. He makes this look good. He does. One thing we didn't mention about Men in Black as far as the franchise as a whole goes uh you've got of course the original comics that it was based on you've got the three original movies you've got this the ride in universal studios oh such a great ride! oh my gosh i love that ride men in black alien attack yes they that's one other part of men in black international that i feel like they really tried to like overly emphasize and shoehorn into it is everything had a red button red button this red button that (laughs) and if you've ridden the universal ride you know that at the very end of the ride there's a red button that you're not supposed to push until zed says the only thing left to do is to push the red button i thought like i know disney has gone back and made movies about their rides to try to integrate them make them more like oh look i'm gonna ride the pirates of the caribbean ride like i saw Mm -hmm. johnny depp in the movie right i think as far as a movie tie-in and theme park tie-in goes having your characters constantly say push the red button don't push the red button (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) i laughed every time they said it because i could hear zed say the only thing left to do Push the, red button. <laughs> the best thing about that ride though is that when you get to a point in the ride about two-thirds of the way through the other car because there's two tracks the other car goes you both go through scanners and in each car you see that the other car is aliens so no matter which car you're in you think that the other car is uh, a group of aliens that you have to shoot so you're supposed to shoot this little uh, light. It's either blue or red, I don't remember, at the top of each vehicle. Blue, yep. And my favorite thing to do was turn around and shoot my own because my points would go up because I could very easily hit my own blue button or blue blue light. I wouldn't really have to aim that hard. It's right there behind you. You just turn around and shoot it. And that was an easy way to cheat and get your score up, and you would always win. Mm-hmm. Or I would always win. <laughs> yeah, I, I so much fun, and it made the car spin. It made the vehicle spin, so that was a fun part of the ride too. And for as much as I didn't really like Men in Black International, if they can find a way to like redo any little scene and maybe throw in an Easter egg or two from Men in Black International, I think that would be pretty cool, just to at least kind of tie everything together. Might be fun. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've uh, beat Men in Black International down as as well as we could. There's a lot more we could say about it, but we don't want to make it any worse. No. So, Eric, where can people find you? People can find me on my other podcast, Everything, Anything, and Nothing Really. 
It's on YouTube. It's on iTunes. It's on Podbean, wherever podcasts are sold. And I can also be found on Facebook and Instagram, uh, Eric underscore Walensky for Instagram and just Eric Walensky on Facebook and uh, you'll figure out how to spell it. I hope they will. For me, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Fildimo, F-I-L-D-I-M-O. Also, you can follow our page for This Podcast Ruined My Childhood on Facebook. Just search for This Podcast Ruined My Childhood, as well as on Twitter at Podcast Ruined. That is just one word, at Podcast Ruined. Uh, you can hear me as a guest on other podcasts in the Real Fans for Real Movies Network, Real Fans for Real Movies, the original, uh, Disorder, Every Disney Film in Order, Holy Batcast, All About Batman, and Grim Grinning Hosts, a uh, podcast about theme parks. Man, I'm not, I'm not working hard enough. <laughs> so we hope that listening to this hasn't ruined your childhood, remembering Men in Black, and uh, we also hope that none of you have actually watched Men in Black International. <laughs> have a great night, everybody. Could it be? I've misunderstood This podcast ruined my childhood Edwards Let's put it on Put what on? The last suit you'll ever wear Dress only in attire specially sanctioned by MIB Special Services. You'll conform to the identity we give you. Eat where we tell you. Live where we tell you. From now on, you'll have no identifying marks of any kind. You will not stand out in any way. Your entire image is crafted to leave no lasting memory with anyone you encounter. You are a rumor, recognizable only as deja vu and dismissed just as quickly. You don't exist. You were never even born. Anonymity is your name. Silence your native tongue. You are no longer part of the system. You are above the system. Over it. Beyond it. We're them. We're they. We are the men in black. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. Another thing that we didn't talk about, but this, the song, his song was his first solo. Yes. uh, Yes. Yes. His first solo really track. It came out on his album, Big Willie style. It came out a couple months later, but this was the first song that was released when he was by himself without jazz.